Good evening, and welcome to our evening worship service. If you would stand with me now for our call to worship, we will begin. It comes from Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us tonight in calling us back to this place to enter into your presence with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. Would you give us thankful hearts that are tuned to sing your grace and your praise? And would you be glorified during this hour? For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's turn turn in our hymnals to number 302. 302. Come Christians, join to sing. Please be seated. Our Old Testament reading for this evening comes from Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, and we will read verses 1 through 10. Beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these officials And satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction 
that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And this ends the reading of God's word. Now as we respond to God's word, you will find in your bulletin a corporate confession of sin. We will use these words to confess our sins aloud as a group to God. And after that, we'll have a few moments of silence where we can individually, silently confess our sins to God and pray about whatever else might be on our hearts. So let us pray together. Most holy and merciful Father, wayward children, do humbly confess our shortcomings and our sin. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have lived too much for ourselves and not for you. We have not loved our neighbors as we should, nor faithfully followed our master in unselfish service. Forgive us that we may forget those things which are behind and press toward the high calling of Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you that your steadfast love endures forever, that your mercies never cease and never fail, that you are more ready to hear than we are to pray, that you are more ready to forgive than we are to confess. We thank you for the opportunity we have together as the body of Christ to pray tonight. Uh, we're thankful that we're able to do so in freedom. Uh, we look at this story of Daniel and see what it cost him to pray. He put himself in great danger to pray, but he knew it was his duty to pray, and it was his habit to pray. So even in the face of great harm, he continued to do so. And you delivered him from danger in the aftermath of it. And so, Father, we pray that whatever dangers your people might be facing tonight, whether in this body or believers around the world that you would stop the mouths of lions that you would show mercy to them that you would be kind toward them in your providence father we look forward to a day when righteousness will cover this earth as the waters cover the ocean and as the sands cover the seashore when all swords will be beat into plowshares and all spears into pruning hooks, when men will study war no more, when the prince of peace will reign this earth, reign and rule over this earth in perfect peace, in his everlasting kingdom. We know that kingdom is yet to be consummated, but we also know that that kingdom has been inaugurated and that we are members of it. And so we ask that you, Lord Jesus, would reign in our hearts and that while the world does not know peace, that we would know peace. We would know the calm of sins forgiven, the peace that passes understanding, that your grace would wash over us 
and we'd have peace like a river. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, sinners. Forgive our sins. Relieve our ailments. Help us in our struggles and provide encouragement for our pilgrimage. Even this night as we sing to you and pray to you, study your word, hear your assurance of pardon, and hear your benediction. Use these things for the good of our souls, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have confessed our sins. Now hear God's assurance of pardon from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. God says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Christ died for our sins. He made full atonement for his people. We are forgiven, and we have the promise of eternal life. Receive that forgiveness, not only with your mind, but receive it also in your heart. Amen. Now as we receive our evening offering, I'd also invite you to turn in your hymnals to hymn number 308. While the offering is being taken up, we will sing Jesus Paid It All, 308. Now I would invite you to turn with me to our New Testament reading, which can be found in 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, we will read verses 1 through 10. 
hear God's word. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And this ends this reading of God's holy word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing. Father, send out your light, send out your truth, and teach us, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So it's been a while for me to be up here on a regular Sunday night, uh, but what I was doing and what I'm going to continue to do uh, for several more weeks is lead us through a series dealing on the subject of spiritual slumps, how to deal with them. And I'm following the outline of Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. So we've talked in past weeks about things like seeking spiritual balance, about dealing with guilt over past sins, about dealing with regret, about dealing with fear of the future, dealing with our emotions, learning to apply our faith on a minute-by-minute basis, etc., this week, following Lloyd-Jones' outline, we're dealing with what he calls devotion. I'm going to reframe that somewhat and talk about the subject of spiritual disciplines and how spiritual disciplines play a role in fighting against spiritual slumps that we might go through. And really, they do this by showing us the true way, God's way, to freedom. The gospel is meant to make us free. Jesus died so that we could have life. Jesus was arrested and imprisoned so that we could be free. So why is it that we often feel like we're not living and we're not free? Well, maybe it's because we don't understand what real freedom is. So three points. I want to talk about that there's a wrong kind of freedom we can seek after what true freedom is, and how we can get true freedom. So number one, there's a wrong kind of freedom. In our passage, in verse 5, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. I want to focus on that word, self-control, or Self-discipline, you could call it. It's something that you have to work toward. It's, he begins with faith in the passage. He works his way toward virtue, self-control, and other qualities. But the point being, self-control is not automatic. It's not that you're born again and immediately you become a self-control machine. This has always been true. That's why Peter's writing it nearly 2,000 years ago. But it's particularly true now. We live in an age of freedom, 
at least in the West, especially in America. And when you look at the, what are now the older generations, the, the baby boomers and the Gen Xers, you can see all over the place in their art that more than anything else, they wanted freedom. With baby boomers, you had Woodstock, free love, rock and roll, interstate highways, and no-fault divorce. You had songs like Willie Nelson singing On the Road Again, Steppenwolf singing Born to be Wild, the Beach Boys singing I Get Around, the Eagles singing Life in the Fast Lane, Take It Easy, Already Gone, just on and on. Just listen to the Eagles. It's all about freedom. Jackson Brown singing Running on, em running on Empty. You know, for Gen Xers, um, a while back I, brought, I bought an Eric... Yes, I still buy albums occasionally. Not everybody does that now. But I bought an Eric Church album, if you're not familiar, famous country music singer. And one of my daughters and I were riding in the car and listening to this album. And I paused it about three or four songs in, and I said, what are your impressions so far? And she said, he surely does like to talk about driving. It's like every song was about driving. It was about the open road, about freedom, about getting away. And... You know, popular music is a great way to do sociology because it wouldn't be popular if it didn't resonate with many, many people. Driving was a major sign of freedom to older generations. You ask younger millennials and Gen Zs now, they don't really care about driving because they have the internet and they have Uber. But for these older generations, like you go through, I was just thinking of songs off the top of my head. Dirks Bentley, Gen X, country star, has songs like I've Got a Lot of Leaving Left to Do, Free and Easy Down the Road I Go. Sturgill Simpson has a song called Long White Line. I won't be around this old town anymore for a long, long time. I'm going to hit the road, start looking for the end of that long white line. It's about driving. Jody Messina in the 90s had that classic song, Heads Carolina, Tales California. It's like, we got to go somewhere. And that's just country music. But the point is, freedom was a major thing that we craved in this country. And really, we've largely got it now. But there's a downside to freedom. The pastor, Mark Sayers, I really like this analogy. He says, in order for us to have the sense that we're living a well-rounded life, you know, an abundant life, you might put it, a grounded life in Christ, there are three buckets we have that need to be as full as possible at all times. And those buckets are meaning, community, and freedom. We need meaning, community, and freedom. He makes the point, and he's not the only person who's been making this point in the last decade, that we should picture the ideal in which these three buckets, freedom, meaning, and community, are equally full. But in order to raise the level of one, it seems like you almost have to decrease the level of another. In order to fill one up, you have to empty another. At least that's the way it seems. And so when you have unlimited freedom, when that bucket is full to overflowing, what we found is our meaning buckets are getting emptied. So imagine you're driving down a road with white lines, with signs telling you how many miles it is to the next destination. You know where you're going. Therefore, you have a purpose. You have a meaning. I know my destination. But imagine the whole world's just a, a road with no lines and no signs. You can drive anywhere you want, but you have no idea where you're going. And so you have no meaning. You have no purpose. You have no destination. You have unlimited freedom, but you have no meaning. Well, in our modern world, you are free to search for jobs on the Internet. Uh, you're free to go anywhere you want to do whatever you want. You are free to get married, to get divorced, to not get married, to have kids, to not have kids, to choose any identity that you want, any gender that you want, uh, to divorce your parents, that's a thing, to be whatever you want to be. And so people are left wondering, wondering, and wondering, why can't I find meaning in life? And here's the philosopher James K.A. Smith says culturally, we are like a bunch of goldfish who said, I want freedom. And so we look at outside of the fish tank and we see the wide world out there and so we're, we jump out of the tank. 
thinking in the wide world will find freedom, but what does the goldfish find when he jumps out? He's free, but he can't breathe. He can't live. That world can't sustain him. So when Peter says in our passage, verse 5, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. He's saying, make every effort, that is literally, hurry up and start making application of this in your life. What application does he want you to make right now? Supplement your faith. Literally, supplement means to furnish it, to fill it out. He's not denigrating faith. He's saying faith isn't meant to stay the way it started. It's meant to grow. It's meant to mature. It's meant to be filled out. Imagine your faith like a house that needs furniture. That's the idea. You know what it's like when you're, you're young. Maybe you purchase your first house and uh, you get married. And another person moves into that house with you. And what the house starts to get filled out. You get new furniture. There's, new, there's closets to be filled with new clothing. And then you have kids. And boy, then it just more and more. And you're left, oh, boy, this house got full. That's what he's saying he wants to happen to our faith. He wants it to get filled out with virtue and with self-control as prized pieces of furniture. Self-control is that piece of furniture which is meant to keep your freedom bucket in check so that you can keep your meaning bucket full. So if you're going through a spiritual slump, you can ask yourself, do I have too much freedom? And you'll probably often find that that is the, is the case. Now in David Burns' book, Feeling Good, he says the worst thing you can do if you're depressed is just to lay around. Just lay, laying around, that's ultimate freedom. Ask any teenager. It's ultimate freedom. I can just lay here and do nothing. It's freedom. But Burns said, you know, if you're depressed, that's the worst thing you can do. What you need to do is make yourself a checklist and say, I need to do this, 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 and this. Even if it's simple things like get out of bed, brush your teeth, eat breakfast, go for a walk. Whatever it may be, the simplest things, just having something to do can reinvigorate you with meaning and with purpose so that you're not just lying around doing nothing. You can say, I'm free to do nothing. Or I'm free to do anything. Born to be wild or just completely shut down. But that's like a goldfish saying, I'm free to jump out of the water. It's freedom. But at the end of the day, it's not going to help you. It's going to harm you. So point one, the wrong kind of freedom. Here's point two, the right kind of freedom that we should be seeking. Back in our passage in verse three, Peter says that Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All right, there's, so there are a couple things to notice here. First, Peter says all that we need for life and godliness and participation in God's nature has been given to us by the power of God. It is ours for the taking. Second, Peter says Christ has given us, notice what? All we need for life and godliness. I want to focus on that particular word. Godliness is a translation of the Greek word eusebia, which means piety or devotion. In other words, God's power has granted us all we need to live a life that is devoted to God. But you have to do something to access those resources that God has provided for us. So I think I am as about a pro-grace preacher as you're ever going to hear. I love grace. I believe that we're saved by grace alone. Everything we have is ultimately of grace. But I've got to say here that grace does not mean don't do anything. It does not mean you are free to do nothing. Yes, salvation costs you nothing. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean we're free to continue doing nothing in our lives. Take the example of the Apostle Paul. 
I love his little mission statement in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And he's talking about the apostles. He's saying, I outworked Peter. I outworked John, etc. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So he's saying, I am what I am by grace. It's all of grace. But God's grace to me wasn't in vain. It made me get to work. It made me take action. It made me want to live a life devoted to God and to godliness. He wanted to fill out the house of his faith with devotion to God. And so, yes, salvation is all of grace, but at the same time, grace does not mean do nothing. You know, someone once asked Thomas Aquinas, how do you become a saint? And, of course, he was Roman Catholic and had a different understanding of sainthood that, than we do, but it's a good story nonetheless. How do you become a saint? He said, will it? Will it? I remember sharing that quote a couple of years ago in a Sunday school class. And it was really interesting to gauge the reactions of people to it because that quote pops. It makes a strong point. One man, older man, came up to me after Sunday school and he said, you, that's just changed my life. Like on the spot. I'm totally changed. Well, why? Because I realized but this is the problem with me. I'm not willing it. I don't, I'm not using my willpower to actually do something. I need to get up and I need to do something with my life in, in retirement, essentially. But then I had a young man come to me and he said, so, roughly paraphrasing, when you use that quote, are you saying to me that I'm responsible for living the Christian life? And I thought for a second, I said, yes, uh, you are responsible for living the Christian life. So you're saying I have agency. He was a very smart young man. Yes, I'm saying you have agency. And he said to me, I don't think I like that. And he just walked off. Who wants agency? Who wants to take responsibility? But I'll tell you this, that young man I was talking about suffered from major, major depression. And uh, I think it was getting to him to make the point that he had to do something. And he has since done something uh, with his life as well. He's taken many steps and many actions. The point I want to make here is that grace, as someone has said, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. We don't work in order, in, in order to earn, but we do work. Grace is not opposed to you choosing or willing. It's meant to produce, produce you choosing and willing what is right. The Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren said, We may have as much of God as we will. Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber into our hand and bids us take all that we want. If a man is admitted into the bullion vault of a bank and told to help himself and comes out with one cent, whose fault is it that he is poor? You see the point McLaren's making? God has given us everything we need, Peter's telling us. We tend to think, God, you haven't given me enough. You aren't giving me enough, when in fact, he's given us everything we need. We're just not actually seeking to access it. We're not willing it. If you are a Christian, God has given you a new heart and will. You know, when Martin Luther wrote his famous book, The Bondage of the Will, his main point in that book is that non-believers' wills are in bondage to sin. They're bound. They can't seek after God. No one seeks after God. No, not one. That's Paul in Romans. But that's talking about the non-believer. But now that as a Christian, if you've been born again, if you've been regenerated, if you've received the Spirit of God who's now dwelling in you, bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God, you have a new nature that can seek after God, that can will it by the power of the Spirit. And this is true freedom. True freedom means God has set you free from captivity to sin and death. He set you free from captivity to even to the law, trying to earn your way. You don't have to earn anymore. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. But now in light of that, in response to that, will it? 
Seek after him. He's given you the freedom to seek after him. Do it. Well, how can you do that? That's our third point, how real freedom works. Back to our passage, starting in verse 8. Peter says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Here's a couple observations from that little section. He says, if you aren't increasing in knowledge, piety, and love, if you aren't furnishing out the house of faith with this furniture, you are blind to the fact that you've been cleansed from sin. Why does he say this? Well, it goes back, I quote this all the time, but John Owen's great pastoral dilemma. He said, the great work of the preacher is to convince non-believers that they're not saved, that they're not in Christ, that they're damned. But at the same time, it's just as hard to convince believers that they are saved, that they are in Christ, that they have heaven, that they have eternal life, that they're under, under the dominion of Christ and not the dominion of sin. The more and more you realize sin has no hold and no power over you, the more and more you will realize your liberty to actually serve God without fear of condemnation. It's one of my favorite things about the gospel in life that has helped me is just Jesus has given me the, the freedom to fail, to know that I can attempt to do things. And if I fall and if I fail, there's forgiveness at the end of it. Be forgiven. And the second thing Peter says under this point is, he says, practice these qualities, these things that are furnishing out your house. Practice them. Put them into practice. Practice piety. Practice devotion. Practice self-control. This means having holy habits. It means having a life of devotion to Christ. And Peter looks at these things like the little holy habits we have. Scripture reading. Prayer, meditation, fasting, silence, solitude. All these things, as we put them into practice daily, regularly, Peter sees them as an investment that we're making. Uh, And the interest on that investment will compound. It will yield dividends in the long run. Think about the way investments increase. Now, if you're very fortunate, maybe you invest something and you know, the stock explodes and you get a windfall. But that's rare. The way it usually works is you put the money in the investment and over years and years and years that investment increases. And that's how Peter views our spiritual lives. So I want to ask you, do you have a routine of spiritual disciplines in your life? I took a class with Ligon Duncan one time, and he, was, he encouraged us. He said, keep encouraging your people to read the Bible every day. They're not going to do it, but keep encouraging your people to read the Bible every day. That was kind of a joke. But the point is, like, we have to keep reminding ourselves of this over and over again because there are so few who actually do it. You know, when's the last time you've sat in solitude and just meditated on the glory of Jesus Christ? Not only when's the last time of, that you did it, have you made a habit out of doing this regularly, routinely? When's the last time you fasted? Is there habitual fasting present in your life? Make a practice of these things, Peter is saying. You know, if you want to become great at anything, you have to practice, and you have to learn discipline and self-limitation. Like if you want to be a world-class violinist, There's going to be a lot of events you don't go to because you need to spend that time practicing. You're going to limit yourself to some things so that you can pour yourself into this other thing, which is practicing your violin so that you can become great. You know, there's a widely accepted statistic that it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become great at something. 
That's 416 full 24-hour days. Now you cannot, that's daunting. Right? That's daunting on, at face value. 10,000 hours, 460 days, 416 days. You can't get those 10,000 hours all at once. But you get it, you can get it a little at a time. Reading the Bible for 416 straight days without sleeping is literally impossible. But what if you read it for half an hour a day for the next 10 years? Just imagine where you would be 10 years from now. Praying for 416 days straight without sleeping is impossible. But what if you prayed for 15 minutes a day for the next 20 years? Imagine where you would be. I remember as a young Christian, I had a conversation with an old, wise Christian, and it was his birthday. And he was telling me that he had, he had just finished his 50th time reading the Bible. And I said, how did you read the Bible 50 times? And he said, I've read it once a year for the last 50 years. And I thought, that's amazing. That's amazing. But we're, show, we're so, what does Peter say? We're short-sighted. We're short-sighted. And we need to think about long-term yields and benefits, not just short-term, what I feel like doing right now because I have freedom. Fred Craddock tells a story that I love where he says, basically, you start out the Christian life, especially if you're converted as an adult, and you bring this big, empty, unfurnished faith to God. And you say, God, tell me something to do. I'll do it. I will go be a missionary in the deepest, darkest, unreached jungles. Just give me something monumental to do, and I'll do it. You feel like God has given you a million dollars, and you just want to spend it all at once. But what God actually does is, yes, he gives you a million dollars. But he says, now go spend it one quarter at a time. Only one quarter at a time. And so, it's a quarter worth of scripture reading each day. A quarter worth of prayer. A quarter worth of fasting. It's making a new friendship, trying to minister to somebody who's hurting. It's loving your spouse and your children well. It's a glass of cold water in Jesus' name. Little acts of service in the church. A little act of kindness to a, per, a poor person. Saying a kind word to someone who's hurting. And a quarter at a time, your house of faith is being filled up with furniture. And that interest is just going to compound and compound. You know, a depressed person needs something to do. There's plenty to do. There's always, just if you need something to do, just come tell me. I can give you something to do easily. We have plenty of work that needs to be done. So we started out talking about our overflowing freedom buckets and our empty meaning buckets. Spiritual disciplines are practically how we limit ourselves and keep our freedom buckets in check so that our meaning buckets can stay full. They're a voluntary limiting of the self, giving up some freedoms in order to gain the ultimate freedom, which is regular communion with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's making the commitment to supplement your faith through discipline. And that's one of the things, that I said, above all other things, that can help us fight through spiritual slumps. And I'll tell you, when it, I may have said this to y'all before, but, and I, I bet somebody else recently, who, well, no, I didn't meet somebody, it's Matt, actually, who, uh, it just came back to me, who likes to read the scriptures in the evening devotionally and you know the reason I've always given for that you know it's odd a lot of people like to start the morning with their devotions I like to end the day with my devotions and the reason for that is that I know no matter what happens to me today no matter what I go through that at the end of the day I'm going to get to have communion with God I'm going to get to hear God's word I'm going to get to hear the gospel I'm going to get to hear Christ speaking to me telling me no matter what you did today you can rest tonight because the Lord who keepeth Israel, he slumbers not nor sleeps. Because he is your keeper. 
and that you're going to wake in the morning if it's his will, and once again you're going to live another day, whatever trials and tribulations you face, in his grace, knowing that you get the end of the day all over again with his word. It's like ending the service with a benediction. No matter what you suffer through in this service, you're going to get to end with the Lord bless you and keep you. And that is priceless. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was in the pulpit on a Sunday evening getting ready to preach when a German bomb fell like two blocks away from Westminster Chapel in London. And you know what he did? He just kept praying. Daniel, our story earlier, he's going to face the lion's den. He's got all kinds of trials awaiting him. You know what he does? He prays. And I, you know why he prayed? Well, it was the right thing to do, yes, but I think more, even, maybe more than that's not the right phrase, but equally to that, David was a man of holy habits. He had ingrained this habitual life of prayer into himself year after year after year. Praying three times a day was just as natural to Daniel as maybe you drinking your morning cup of coffee or getting on the treadmill or getting on your phone. You know, do whatever those habits are you have so ingrained in you that you just can't not do it. That's Daniel with prayer. And that's the life God calls us to. He says, everything's here for the taking. You know, I've opened the vault up to you. Maybe you can't go in and get a million dollars all at once. You can't hold it, but you can get a quarter at a time. A quarter at a time. And you can, you can do this through Scripture, through prayer, through fasting, through meditation, through discipline. Discipline is investing in true freedom by investing in God's will for our lives. And t- 10 years from now, if you were to s- just start something tonight, just tonight, just say, tonight I'm going to start... X, Y, or Z, some holy habit. You're going to come back to me a year from now and say, I'm so glad I started it. You're going to come back 10 years from now and and you're still going to be doing it. And you're going to be amazed that you're still doing it, but you'll find that you can't not do it. Remember what that McLaren quote. We have as much of God as we will. Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber into our hand and bids us take all that we want. You can't take it all now. But you can take it all a little at a time. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us a people who are a disciplined people, who are a scripture-saturated people, who are a praying people, a fasting people, a meditating people, a... You know, we all are most often refrain, how are you doing? Busy. I'm busy. But Lord, we find time to do the things we want to do. So give us hearts that want spiritual discipline in our lives. Give us hearts that see Jesus Christ opening the bank of heaven and saying, here, come. It's all yours for the taking. You can have as much of God as you will. And help us to will it. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 562. 562. All to Jesus I surrender.
now leave with God's blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you all. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.